It's good to be back this evening. We're thankful for everyone who's taken the time to come and be with us tonight in this study of God's Word. And we hope that the things that we have to say will be edifying and uplifting. Young people, I want to say two or three things as I began this evening that I'd like you to take away from this sermon. Number one, you can't add to or take from the New Testament, Revelation 22, 18, and 19. That's just taught very, very plainly that we can't change God's Word to suit us. It's our job to be His servant and to follow Him. If you go back to the old law and try to place yourself under it by following those commands, you must take it all. Every jot, every tittle, all the words of the Lord. That's what we studied this morning. That's what the Bible says. And I don't know of a person on this earth that does that. Now, I know there's a lot of people say they follow the law, but if you look at what it says and what they're doing, it doesn't match. Thirdly, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 9 and 10. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, the first covenant, that he may establish the second covenant. By the which will, or covenant, the second one, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This scripture really jumped out at me as I was studying for this lesson. It's a prophecy from back in uh, Psalms 40. Jesus said, I come to do your will, O God. And certainly he did. Why else would he have been willing to come? I come to do your will, O God. He taketh away the first. That's really plain. That was one of his purposes in coming was to take away the old covenant. God had assigned him that responsibility. And I hope you'll keep those three things in mind as you go through your life. One of the arguments that's made in favor of keeping the law are parts of the law is the words perpetual, everlasting, forever, and throughout your generations. Those phrases are found throughout the law. I just want to mention a few things here quickly. First of all, the word perpetual and everlasting and forever don't mean always. It can, if you talk about God being forever, yeah, there's no end to that. But on these other things... The word forever doesn't mean without an end. It just means it's far enough ahead you can't see the end. I want to notice some things that those phrases are used to modify. The Passover was instituted. You shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. 
So if you go back to the law, you're going to have to keep the Passover and you're going to have to go to Jerusalem to do that. Burn lamps in the tabernacle of which there is no tabernacle. It's a statute forever. The Levites were to wash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle. That was a statute forever. The Sabbath was a sign throughout your generations for a perpetual covenant forever. Now folks, if we can figure out about these other things, and this is a partial list that I have here that I've worked on through the years. If we can figure out what forever means relative to the Passover, relative to the anointing of oil, the burning of incense, the priesthood, and many, many more things, then we can figure out what it means when it says the Sabbath was going to last forever. The time frame's exactly the same, and it's modified by this other phrase throughout your generations, as long as Israel was a nation. Now, I'm not talking about secular Jews. I'm talking about the descendants of Abraham. But when God sent Titus, the Roman general, in AD 70, to destroy the city of Jerusalem, level it to the ground, plow the ground, hopefully that nobody would ever build it back, that special relationship that that nation had had with God was over. And all of these things passed away. Every one of them. There's nothing in that Old Testament that is a commandment for you and I to follow today. Circumcision was an everlasting, an everlasting statute throughout their generations. But you've got to know, and I, I don't want to get very far off on that because I've got another chart just on the word forever. And that is different time frames. That, that doesn't specify any specific time frame. For example, the book of Jonah says Jonah was in the belly of the whale forever. Three days. And if you'll study those words, you will see some of them meant throughout the uh, Jewish age. Some of them meant forever and ever. I believe we're going to be saved in heaven forever with that time without end. I had a guy come knock on my door about sundown one day, and he said, do you believe you're going to heaven? I said, well, yes, sir, I sure hope to. And he said, how long is it going to last? And I said, forever. He said, you really believe that? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, you know, the Bible says the earth abideth forever. That stumped me. Because I knew 2 Peter 3.10 said that it's going to pass away with a great noise and a fervent heat. That's the first key that I got to study this subject. And that's when we lived on Portland when our kids were little. And so that word doesn't mean time without end always. In some instances it does, but a lot of other most of the time it doesn't. 
The beginning of the two covenants, the givers of those two covenants is Moses and Christ. When Moses was giving the law at Mount Sinai, 3,000 people died. Did you know that? Because they were worshiping idols before they ever got the law. When the new covenant was given in Acts 2, 3,000 souls were saved and made alive. That's how superior the new covenant is. I find that very interesting. That's why the old covenant is called the administration of death. Because that's all the law can administer is death. The law can't save anybody. It can just condemn them. The new covenant is called the ministration of righteousness. Because it can make us righteous if we contact the blood of Jesus. Deuteronomy 31, at the end of the law, or right near the end, I think there's 34 chapters, 31, it says, Moses wrote in the book of the law until it was finished. Until it was finished. And he placed it in the side of the ark as a witness against you. What does that mean? The law is a witness. He said it's a witness against you because it identifies sin. And when that Ark of the Covenant went before them, when they were going through the desert, it was in front, they looked at it every day, and it was a witness to their shortcomings, and they knew it. That's why it's called the curse of the law. Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant, that it may be a witness against you. The Bible tells us that Christians are not under the law or its jurisdiction or its authority. The law was last, pardon me, the law was to last until the seed came. That's how long forever is. The law was to last till the seed came. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. So the law was going to last until Jesus died on the cross. And all of these forever things passed away. The law was valuable in some ways. It taught them right and wrong. It taught them about sacrifice. It taught them about the priesthood. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. But after faith came, we're no longer under the law. The faith is... Jesus and the new covenant and belief in Him. And before He came, that's all they had. But we've got a far superior covenant to the old covenant by which we can have eternal life and a mansion in heaven and live with God forever. One purpose of the law was to introduce them to the prophecies of Christ. It was to lead them to Christ.
Galatians 5 and 18 says, You are not under the law. That's a pretty straightforward, uh, pardon me, straightforward sentence to me. You're not under the law. Verse 15 says, Because you are not under the law. How many times does the Bible have to say something for people to believe it's true? How in the world can we take those statements and say that means, yes, you're still under the law? That's not what that means. It says we're not under the law. It was given to the Jews as we talked about this morning. This is the book of the law. This was their constitution. This contained their whole law. It's what ruled their lives. They were amenable to it. We're not under it. Romans 10.4 says Christ is the end of the law to them that believe. Christ is the end of the law to them that believe. Do you believe Christ is the end of the law? There's a lot of religious people that don't. Colossians 2.14, he said he nailed the law to the cross, taking it out of the way. Ephesians 2.15 says that he abolished the law. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says the law is done away. Hebrews 7.12 says there's been a change in the law. And if you look up that word change, and I have, it means to change from one to another. It doesn't mean just to tinker with it a little bit. It's to change from the first one to the second one. That's what he says. You are to change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Hebrews 8.13 says it was going to vanish away, that it was unprofitable, and that Jesus took it away. In Hebrews 8 and verse number 13... <clears throat> Paul said, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now he's just quoted that prophecy from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31 and 31, that God was going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. Brought them out of Egypt. It's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. One thing is, before you enter into this covenant... You're going to know what it means. You have to have knowledge before you can enter this covenant. When they went to Mount Sinai and they came together there, they agreed to keep the covenant before any of it was ever uttered. So you see, there's a difference in the covenants. There's a lot of the difference. He saith a new covenant. He made that first one old. And it's ready to vanish Away. What do the terms vanish away mean? How would we understand what that means? It means it won't be around anymore. It'll be out of sight.
Hebrews 9 and verse number 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is no, it is no, give me a second, strength at all while the testator liveth. Probably a lot of people here have a will, and that's what that's talking about. He's comparing the law to a will. You have a will. That will can't go into effect until you die. And so the new law could not go into effect until Jesus died. And that's what he's teaching us here with a simple illustration that we can understand. So as we think about the two laws, the two covenants, let's use this illustration of two brothers. Bill's dad wrote a will and left him the car and the boat and the house. He wrote in the will that Joe would get the bank account, the rent house, and the stocks. That's what the dad put into the will. But you know, they were arguing about all of that, and so dad went back and he changed it up some. And he said, Bill, <coughs> you get the house and the car, the house and the car, and the stocks, and you're going to give up the boat. And Joe, you're going to get the bank account, the rent house, and the boat, but you're going to have to give up something too. So he rewrote the will. And Dad dies. And Joe goes to the judge and he says, Judge, I think we need to make some changes to that will. I liked it better the way it was the first time. Let's change it back. And the judge says, Joe, we can't change the will once your dad died. The wills don't change. When death comes, that's it. And we always go by the last will that was written. You may have written ten wills. But when you die, they're going to go by the last one. And that's the way the two wills of God work. The first one's been done away. We're going to be judged and rewarded according to the new will, the New Testament. You know, once a will is exercised, it's exercised. And any contract that you make, one party can't change it after it's made without agreement from both of them. Any contract. So we don't get to pick and choose what we want out of the law. That's not the last will. It was the first one. I was asked this morning after the service by a couple of people, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, that's the answer. Those ten were gathered together and put in one spot and written on two tables of stone. There was ten of them. 
When Jesus died, we don't move that law over into the new law. Now, I will tell you that nine of those commandments are given in the New Testament. But the tenth one wasn't. You see, people leave out of that next will what they didn't want in there. And the Lord didn't want the Sabbath for all nations. What good would it do people all over the world to do a memorial every Saturday to the Jews leaving Egyptian bondage. What good did that do any of us? And God left it out. That was His choice, not ours. That was His choice. And Jesus came to take that away according to the will of God. If you want to argue with God on the day of judgment, that'll be your prerogative. If you want to keep part of the law today, that's your life and your decisions. But I don't think that's going to work very good on the day of judgment. Because we're under the new will, we don't follow the fourth commandment. Jesus never included it in the New Testament. There's no place in the New Testament where you're threatened for not keeping the Sabbath. Now under the old law, that was a pretty regular thing with the prophets. In the New Testament, we're threatened that if we do the works of the flesh, we'll not enter into heaven. But nobody in the New Testament is ever threatened for not keeping the Sabbath. The number one problem in the churches of the first century was people wanting to bring over things from the old law. A lot of these people were Jewish and their families had been Jewish for 1,500 years and they were used to those traditions and they wanted to bring those things over into the church. That was the number one problem of the church of the first century. Somebody says, well, how do you know that? Okay, real quickly, let's look at some of these letters. In Ephesians 2, 15, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. They were having a problem over this. And he says, having abolished in his flesh the law of, com the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He addressed the problem, didn't he? Very plainly, very straightforward. In Colossians 2, 14, the handwritten ordinances, he says he took them out of the way, nailing them to his cross. He addressed that problem in the church there. The church at Philippi, Paul said, touching the righteousness which is the law, blameless. But he said, I count that but dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ my Lord. Those are pretty strong words. The church at Galatia, or the churches in the region of Galatia. A man is not justified by the works of the law. By the works of the law shall no man be justified. For through the law I am dead to the law. As many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Those are strong words by Paul. No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. 
Till the seed come, Christ, was how long that was to endure. Christ has come, Paul says. We're living in the Christian age. We're not back in the Jewish age. Romans, we're not under the law. How many times does the Bible have to say something for people to believe it? When he talks about not being under the law, he's talking about not being under the jurisdiction of the law. That's not going to judge us. We're not obligated to keep that. Paul said, I were that they were cut off which trouble you. What does he mean? He's talking about being disciplined or removed from the church. Because these people were heretics. Titus 3.10, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. They were stirring up trouble everywhere they went. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything. Being, the males being circumcised is the way they entered into the covenant. Now how could Paul say that circumcision doesn't avail anything if there wasn't any other way to get into the covenant they were living under. <clears throat> I want to cover another point here tonight. I want you to turn back in the Old Testament. If, you're, if you've got one of these pew Bibles, it's page number, wrote it here somewhere, 79. Page 79. Got the wrong Bible. Hang with me a minute. Exodus chapter 32. What we're reading about here in Exodus 32 is when Moses is coming down from the mountain with the two tables of stone and we read down here in the chapter a little bit later how that Aaron had got the, the children of Israel to break off their earrings and their jewelry and as he told Moses later he said you know I just threw that in the fire and this, this calf came out he's lying through his teeth that wasn't what happened he made a golden image to worship. And the people bowed down and said, This is our God that brought us out of Egypt. God was angry. 3,000 people died. That's how angry God was. God was serious about the matter.
Exodus 34 and verse 1, the Lord said unto Moses, You you out two stones. Now let's go down to verse 29. It came to pass when Moses was wist not, or knew not, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. In other words, when, God, when he would go in to talk to God, when he came out, his face was just a glow. Because he'd been before the glory of God. That Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come close to him. Verse 33, Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. So they wouldn't be afraid of him, and he could get close enough for them to hear him. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. Verse 35. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of his face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him again. This shook up the children of Israel. It was a big deal. It really got their attention. They were jittery about those 3,000 that had just died. All right. Now I read that because Paul talks about that incident in 2 Corinthians 3. And let's go there now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm telling you, this chapter was a mystery to me for years. It really was. And I just couldn't seem to, to solve it. And I read in a book one day, if you want to understand 2 Corinthians 3, go back and read Exodus 34 first, and then read what Paul said, and it'll all come to you. And you know, I did that, and that's what happened. Mystery solved. Because he's talking about the same events in both places. So here in 2 Corinthians verse uh, 6, Paul said, Who made us able, and he's talking about the apostles and teachers and elders, and all, who also made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter. But the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones, what's he talking about? The Ten Commandments. Was, past tense, glorious. So the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. That seems simple now, doesn't it? How shall the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious or more glorious? If that which is done away, Ten Commandments, was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, 
And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. He said they had that veil over his face. And as he compares that law, he says they couldn't look into the future and see that there would be a time when that law was abolished. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. And he said, when you're following the teaching of the Old Testament, you've got a veil over your heart so that the gospel can't penetrate it. Which veil is done away in Christ. If you follow Christ, that veil, that blindness will go away. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the Old Testament, the veil is upon their heart. That's why Jesus said to the Jews that you're blind. You can't see. All you can see is the law. You can't see the Savior. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, Israel... The veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. When we look at the Lord and the teaching of the Lord, we're changed into His image. We don't, he doesn't have a physical body. That's not what they're talking about. It's talking about your heart, your inner man. And when we read the New Testament, we're changed into the image of God. The law didn't make them in the image of God. But the New Testament will. Isn't that plain? I sure wished I'd known that when I was younger. <laughs> I'm going to close right there. I'm going to give you back five minutes I took this morning. Thank you for coming tonight. I hope you've learned something. I hope it's been edifying. I hope it will benefit you in the future. We never like to close our assembly without offering an invitation. If you have a need in your life, we encourage you to come. We've got time. If you want to be baptized or if you need prayer or if you just have another need in your life that we can help you with, will you come as we stand and sing?